Chapter Twenty Three of Oscar Wilde: His Life and Confessions. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Geeson. Oscar Wilde: His Life and Confessions, by Frank Harris. Chapter Twenty Three: His Judgments of Writers and of Women he was an incomparable companion perfectly amiable yet vivid and eager as a child always interested and interesting we awoke at avignon and went out in pyjamas and overcoats to stretch our legs and get a bowl of coffee on the platform in the pearly grey light of early morning after coffee and cigarettes he led the way to the other end of the platform, that we might catch a glimpse of the town wall, which, though terribly restored, yet when seen from a distance, transports one back five hundred years to the age of chivalry. "'How I should have loved to be a troubadour, or a trouvère, Frank! That was my true métier to travel from castle to castle singing love-songs and telling romantic stories to while away the tedium of the lives of the great fancy the reception they would have given me for bringing a new joy into their castled isolation new ideas new passions a breath of gossip and scandal from the outside world to relieve the intolerable boredom of the middle ages i should have been kept at the court of x i think they would have bound me with flower chains and my fame would have spread all through the sunny vineyards and grey olive-clad hills of provence when we got into the train again he began we stop next at marseilles don't we frank a great historic town for nearly three thousand years one really feels a barbarian in comparison and yet all i know of marseilles is that it is famous for bouillabaisse suppose we stop and get some bouillabaisse i replied is not peculiar to marseilles or the rue canebiere you can get it all along this coast there is only one thing necessary to it and that is rascasse a fish caught only among the rocks you will get excellent bouillabaisse at lunch where we are going where are we going you have not told me yet it is for you to decide i answered if you want perfect quiet, there are two places in the Esterel Mountains, Aguet and La Napoule. Aguet is in the middle of the Esterel. You would be absolutely alone there except for the visit of an occasional French painter. La Napoule is eight or ten miles from Cannes, so that you are within reach of a town and its amusements there is still another place i had thought of quieter than either in the mountains behind nice nice sounds wonderful frank but i should meet too many english people there who would know me and they are horribly rude i think we will choose la napoule 
about ten o'clock we got out at lanapoule and installed ourselves in the little hotel taking up three of the best rooms on the second or top floor much to the delight of the landlord at twelve we had breakfast under a big umbrella in the open air looking over the sea i had put the landlord on his mettle and he gave us a fry of little red mullet which made us understand how tasteless whitebait are then a plain beefsteak au pomme a morsel of cheese and a sweet omelette we both agreed that we had had a most excellent breakfast the coffee left a good deal to be desired and there was no champagne on the list fit to drink but both these faults could be remedied by the morrow and were remedied we spent the rest of the day wandering between the seashore and the pine-clad hills the next morning i put in some work but in the afternoon i was free to walk and explore on one of my first tramps i discovered a monastery among the hills hundreds of feet above the sea built and governed by an italian monk i got to know the pere vergile and had a great talk with him he was both wise and strong with ingratiating gentle manners had he gone as a boy from his little italian fishing village to new york or paris he would have certainly come to greatness and honour one afternoon i took oscar to see him the monastery was not more than three-quarters of an hour's stroll from our hotel but oscar grumbled at the walk as a nuisance said it was miles and miles the road too was rough and the sun hot the truth was he was abnormally lazy but he fascinated the italian with his courteous manner and vivid speech and as soon as we were alone the abbe asked me who he was he must be a great man he said he has the stamp of a great man and he must have lived in courts he has the charming graceful smiling courtesy of the great yes i nodded mysteriously a great man incognito the abbe kept us to dinner made us taste of his oldest wines and a special liqueur of his own distilling told us how he had built the monastery with no money and when we exclaimed with wonder reproved us gently all great things are built with faith and not with money why wonder that this little building stands firmly on that everlasting foundation when we came out of the monastery it was already night and the moonlight was throwing fantastic leafy shadows on the path as we walked down through the avenue of forest to the seashore you remember those words of virgil frank per amica silentia lunae they always seem to me indescribably beautiful the most magic line about the moon ever written except browning's in the poem in which he mentioned keats him even i love that amica silentia what a beautiful nature the man had 
who could feel the friendly silences of the moon when we got down the hill he declared himself tired tired after a mile i asked tired to death worn out he said laughing at his own laziness shall we get a boat and row across the bay how splendid of course let's do it and we went down to the landing stage i had never seen the water so calm half the bay was veiled by the mountain and opaque like unpolished steel a little further out the water was a purple shield emblazoned with shimmering silver we called a fisherman and explained what we wanted when we got into the boat to my astonishment oscar began calling the fisher boy by his name evidently he knew him quite well when we landed i went up from the boat to the hotel leaving oscar and the boy together a fortnight taught me a good deal about oscar at this time he was intensely indolent quite content to kill time by the hour talking to the fisher lads or he would take a little carriage and drive to cannes and amuse himself at some wayside cafe he never cared to walk and i walked for miles daily so that we spent only one or at most two afternoons a week together meeting so seldom that nearly all our talks were significant several times contemporary names came up and i was compelled to notice for the first time that really he was contemptuous of almost everyone and had a sharp word to say about many who were supposed to be his friends one day we spoke of ricketts and shannon i was saying that had ricketts lived in paris he would have had a great reputation many of his designs i thought extraordinary and his intellect was peculiarly french mordant even oscar did not like to hear praise of any one do you know my word for them frank i like it i call them temper and temperament was his punishment making him a little spiteful or was it the temptation of the witty phrase what do you think of arthur simons i asked oh frank i said of him long ago that he was a sad example of an egoist who had no ego and what of your compatriot george moore he's popular enough i continued popular frank as if that counted george moore has conducted his whole education in public he had written two or three books before he found out there was such a thing as english grammar he at once announced his discovery and so won the admiration of the illiterate a few years later he discovered that there was something architectural in style that sentences had to be built up into a paragraph and paragraphs into chapters and so on naturally he cried this revelation too from the housetops 
and thus won the admiration of the journalists who had been making rubble heaps all their lives without knowing it i'm much afraid frank in spite of all his efforts he will die before he reaches the level from which writers start it's a pity because he has certainly a little real talent he differs from simon's in that he has an ego but his ego has five senses and no soul what about bernard shaw i probed further after all he's going to count yes frank a man of real ability but with a bleak mind humorous gleams as of wintry sunlight on a bare harsh landscape he has no passion no feeling and without passionate feeling how can one be an artist he believes in nothing loves nothing not even bernard shaw and really on the whole i don't wonder at his indifference and he laughed mischievously and wells i asked a scientific jules verne he replied with a shrug did you ever care for hardy i continued not greatly he has just found out that women have legs underneath their dresses and this discovery has almost wrecked his life he writes poetry i believe in his leisure moments and i am afraid it will be very hard reading he knows nothing of love passion to him is a childish illness like measles poor unhappy spirit you might be describing mrs humphrey ward i cried god forbid frank he exclaimed with such mock horror i had to laugh after all hardy is a writer and a great landscape painter i don't know why it is he went on but i am always matchmaking when i think of english celebrities i should so much like to have introduced mrs humphrey ward blushing at eighteen or twenty to swinburne who would of course have bitten her neck in a furious kiss and she would have run away and exposed him in court or else have suffered agonies of mingled delight and shame in silence and if one could only marry thomas hardy to victoria cross he might have gained some inkling of real passion with which to animate his little keepsake pictures of starched ladies a great many writers i think might be saved in this way but there would still be left the corellis and hall canes that one could do nothing with except bind them back to back which would not even tantalize them and throw them into the river a new noyade the thames at barking i think would be about the place for them where do you go every afternoon i asked him once casually i go to cannes frank and sit in a cafe and look across the sea to capri where tiberius used to sit like a spider watching 
and I think of myself as an exile, the victim of one of his inscrutable suspicions, or else I am in Rome, looking at the people dancing naked, but with gilded lips, through the streets at the Floralia. I sup with the Arbiter Elegantiarum, and come back to Lanapul, Frank, and he pulled his jowl, to the simple life and the charm of restful friendship. More and more clearly I saw that the effort, the hard work of writing, was altogether beyond him. He was now one of those men of genius, talkers merely, half artists, half dreamers, whom Balzac describes contemptuously as wasting their lives, talking to hear themselves talk, capable indeed of fine conceptions and of occasional fine phrases, but incapable of the punishing toil of execution, charming companions, fated in the long run to fall to misery and destitution constant creation is the first condition of art as it is the first condition of life i asked him one day if he remembered the terrible passage about those eunuchs of art in la cousine bette yes frank he replied but balzac was probably envious of the artist talker at any rate, we who talk should not be condemned by those to whom we dedicate our talents. It is for posterity to blame us. But after all I have written a good deal. Do you remember how Browning Sarto defends himself? Some good son paint my two hundred pictures. Let him try. He did not see that Balzac one of the greatest talkers that ever lived, according to Théophile Gautier, was condemning the temptation to which he himself had no doubt yielded too often. To my surprise, Oscar did not even read much now. He was not eager to hear new thoughts, a little rebellious to any new mental influence. He had reached his zenith, I suppose had begun to fossilize, as men do when they cease to grow. One day at lunch I questioned him. You told me once that you always imagined yourself in the place of every historic personage. Suppose you had been Jesus, what religion would you have preached? What a wonderful question, he cried. What religion is mine? What belief have I? I believe most of all in personal liberty for every human soul. Each man ought to do what he likes, to develop as he will. England, or rather London, for I know little of England outside London, was an ideal place to me, till they punished me because I did not share their tastes. What an absurdity it all was, Frank! How dared they punish me for what is good in my eyes? How dared they? And he fell into moody thought. The idea of a new gospel did not really interest him. 
it was about this time he first told me of a new play he had in mind it has a great scene frank he said imagine a roue of forty-five who is married incorrigible of course frank a great noble who gets the person he is in love with to come and stay with him in the country one evening his wife who has gone upstairs to lie down with a headache is behind a screen in a room half asleep she is awakened by her husband's courting she cannot move she is bound breathless to her couch she hears everything then frank the husband comes to the door and finds it locked and knowing that his wife is inside with the host beats upon the door and will have entrance and while the guilty ones whisper together the woman blaming the man the man trying to think of some excuse some way out of the net the wife gets up very quietly and turns on the lights while the two cowards stare at her with wild surmise she passes to the door and opens it and the husband rushes in to find his hostess as well as the host and his wife i think it is a great scene frank a great stage picture it is i said a great scene why don't you write it perhaps i shall frank one of these days but now i am thinking of some poetry a ballad of a fisher-boy a sort of companion to the ballad of reading gaol in which i sing of liberty instead of prison joy instead of sorrow a kiss instead of an execution i shall do this joy song much better than i did the song of sorrow and despair like davidson's ballad of a nun i said for the sake of saying something naturally davidson would write the ballad of a nun frank his talent is scotch and severe but i should like to write the ballad of a fisher-boy and he fell to dreaming the thought of his punishment was oft with him it seemed to him hideously wrong and unjust but he never questioned the right of society to punish he did not see that if you once grant that the wrong done to him could be defended i used to think myself a lord of life he said how dared those little wretches condemn me and punish me every one of them tainted with a sensuality which i loathe to call him out of this bitter way of regret i quoted shakespeare's sonnet for why should others false adulterate eyes give salutation to my sportive blood or on my frailties why are frailer spies which in their wills count bad what i think good his complaint is exactly yours oscar it's astonishing frank how well you know him and yet you deny his intimacy with pembroke to you he is a living man you always talk of him as if he had just gone out of the room 
and yet you persist in believing in his innocence you misapprehend me i said the passion of his life was for mary fitton to give her a name i mean the dark lady of the sonnets who was beatrice cressida and cleopatra and you yourself admit that a man who has a mad passion for a woman is immune i think the doctors call it to other influences oh yes frank of course but how could shakespeare with his beautiful nature love a woman to that mad excess shakespeare hadn't your overwhelming love of plastic beauty i replied he fell in love with a dominant personality the complement of his own yielding amiable disposition that's it he broke in our opposites attract us irresistibly the charm of the unknown you often talk now i went on as if you had never loved a woman yet you must have loved more than one my salad days frank he quoted smiling when i was green in judgment cold of blood no no i persisted it is not a great while since you praised lady so-and-so and the terrys enthusiastically lady he began gravely and i could not but notice that the mere title seduced him to conventional poetic language moves like a lily in water i always think of her as a lily just as i used to think of lily langtry as a tulip with a figure like a greek vase carved in ivory but i always adored the terrys marion is a great actress with subtle charm and enigmatic fascination she was my woman of no importance artificial and enthralling she belongs to my theatre as he seemed to have lost the thread i questioned again and ellen oh ellen's a perfect wonder he broke out a great character do you know her history and then without waiting for an answer he continued she began as a model for watts the painter when she was only some fifteen or sixteen years of age in a week she read him as easily as if he had been a printed book he treated her with condescending courtesy en grand seigneur and naturally she had her revenge on him one day her mother came in and asked watts what he was going to do about ellen watts said he didn't understand you have made ellen in love with you said the mother and it is impossible that could have happened unless you had been attentive to her poor watts protested and protested but the mother broke down and sobbed and said the girl's heart would be broken and at length in despair watts asked what he was to do and the mother could only suggest marriage finally they were married you don't mean that i cried i never knew that watts had married ellen terry oh yes said oscar they were married all right 
the mother saw to that and to do him justice watts kept the whole family like a gentleman but like an idealist or as a man of the world would say a fool he was ashamed of his wife he showed great reserve to her and when he gave his usual dinners or receptions he invited only men and so carefully left her out one evening he had a dinner a great many well-known people were present and a bishop was on his right hand when suddenly between the cheese and the pear as the french would say ellen came dancing into the room in pink tights with a basket of roses around her waist with which she began pelting the guests watts was horrified but everyone else delighted the bishop in especial it is said declared he had never seen anything so romantically beautiful watts nearly had a fit but ellen danced out of the room with all their hearts in her basket instead of her roses to me that's the true story of ellen terry's life it may be true or false in reality but i believe it to be true in fact as in symbol it is not only an image of her life but of her art no one knows how she met irving or learned to act though as you know she was one of the best actresses that ever graced the english stage a great personality her children even have inherited some of her talent it was only famous actresses such as ellen terry and sarah bernhardt and great ladies that oscar ever praised he was a snob by nature indeed this was the chief link between him and english society besides he had a rooted contempt for women and especially for their brains he said once of someone he is like a woman sure to remember the trivial and forget the important it was this disdain of the sex which led him later to take up our whole dispute again i have been thinking over our argument in the train he began really it was preposterous of me to let you off with a drawn battle you should have been beaten and forced to haul down your flag we talked of love and i let you place the girl against the boy it is all nonsense a girl is not made for love she is not even a good instrument of love some of us care more for the person than the pleasure i replied and others you remember browning nearer we hold of god who gives than of his tribes that take i must believe yes yes he replied impatiently but that's not the point i mean that a woman is not made for passion and love but to be a mother when i married my wife was a beautiful girl white and slim as a lily with dancing eyes and gay rippling laughter like music in a year or so the flower-like grace had all vanished 
she became heavy shapeless deformed she dragged herself about the house in uncouth misery with drawn blotched face and hideous body sick at heart because of our love it was dreadful i tried to be kind to her forced myself to touch and kiss her but she was sick always and oh i cannot recall it it is all so loathsome i used to wash my mouth and open the window to cleanse my lips in the pure air oh nature is disgusting it takes beauty and defiles it it defaces the ivory-white body we have adored with the vile cicatrices of maternity it befouls the altar of the soul how can you talk of such intimacy as love how can you idealize it love is not possible to the artist unless it is sterile all her suffering did not endear her to you i asked in amazement did not call forth that pity in you which you used to speak of as divine pity frank he exclaimed impatiently pity has nothing to do with love how can one desire what is shapeless deformed ugly desire is killed by maternity passion buried in conception and he flung away from the table at length i understood his dominant motive trait sua quemque voluptas his greek love of form his intolerant cult of physical beauty could take no heed of the happiness or well-being of the beloved i will not talk to you about it frank i am like a persian who lives by warmth and worships the sun talking to some eskimo who answers me with praise of blubber and nights spent in ice-houses and baths of foul vapour let's talk of something else End of chapter 23 Recording by Martin Geeson In Hazelmere, Surrey